I V M. How do Indians view America? How do the Chinese look at the global economy? What do the Russians think of Donald Trump? How do people see other states? How do people see other people? These are some of the questions that we are going to answer in today's episode of States of Anarchy. Welcome to States of Anarchy. I'm your host Hamsini Hariharan and every week on the show I talk about some aspect of global affairs and foreign policy with an expert from the field. I'm super excited for my guest today. Jacob Pauster is the associate director of the Global Attitudes Research at the Pew Research Center. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Pew Research Center, you should check them out. Pew conducts public opinion polling, demographic research, content analysis, and other data-driven social science research. Their data is a treasure trove for anyone who's interested in international relations or public policy. Just a note, this episode was recorded in late 2018 and draws on Pew's 2018 data. But before we go on to the interview, a short break. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another great week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you are not following us on social media, please make sure that you do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So we have something really exciting in store for Star Wars fans. After a successful first edition of the Geek Fruit Cantina, we're back with another. Come celebrate Star Wars Day with us. That's May the fourth with Geek Fruit at the Cuckoo Cafe in Bandra. That's in Mumbai. We have a super fun evening planned with a live podcast featuring special guests, Star Wars merchandise up for grabs, Dinkers games, along with Star Wars themed food and cocktails. You don't want to miss this. This week on the Scene and the Unseen, Amit Verma's guest is economist and researcher Ajay Shah. The two of them talk about zombie firms and banks artificially kept alive by taxpayers. They also take a look at the recent collapse of jet airways. On the second episode of the Ronnie Scrivola podcast, Dreaming with Your Eyes Open, Ronnie Scrivola talks to me about the importance of failure, how age shouldn't be a deterrent for entrepreneurship, and setting the right expectations for your venture. On IVM Likes, Janam Abhinith and Madhuri discuss the gut-wrenching Netflix original series Delhi Crime. On Shunya One, Sheila Ditya and I are joined by Gaurav Jalan, founder and CEO of M Pocket. We talk about the current tech scenario in Kolkata and also get into the technicalities of M Pocket. On advertising is dead. Varun talks to Advait Gupta, co-founder and CEO of Supari Studios, about branded and purpose-driven content. On the Filter Coffee podcast, Karthik is joined by Siddharth Deshmukh, who shares his experience at Mica, both as a student and as a media professor. He talks about liberal education. In Echoes of India, Anirudh explains how brilliant political and religious innovations in fifth-century India led to a spurt of temple building. On Crock Tales last week, Anand Sivakumara reveals the last part of his tale's psycho girlfriend. And begins another multi-part story on Anita's toothache. And with that, let's move on with your shows. Welcome back to States of Anarchy. I'm Hamsini Hariharan, and I'm in conversation with Jacob Pauster of Pew Research Center. Hi, Jacob. Welcome to the show. Thank you for agreeing to speak with me. Thank you for having me. Could you tell me a little bit about what you do, what Pew generally does? Sure. The Pew Research Center uh, does research in the U.S. and around the world on various topics. Uh, from politics to democracy to uh, the international image of the U.S. and uh, demographics. Uh, the Global Attitudes Project specifically does international surveys um, with a focus on uh, views of the U.S., uh, views of the economy, uh, views on globalization, and the balance of power between China and the United States. All right. So, how does Pew conduct these surveys? Who does it speak to? What's the sample size? What's the general methodology of the research that you guys do? Right. So, for our international studies, we do two kinds of uh, methodological um, surveys. Uh, one is phone interviews, 
Uh, these are generally done in uh, uh, countries with more advanced economies, so Western Europe, North America, and East Asia, um, so like Japan, Germany, United States, Canada. Sample sizes of a telephone survey are typically 1,000 to 1,500 people, and they're all nationally representative, which means that we talk to enough people to be representative of the entire population of that country. Uh, in more developing countries, we do face-to-face -face interviews, and that's where uh, the people that we hire to do the surveys actually go door-to-door, -door, knock on people's uh, homes, and talk in their homes for up to 45 minutes on the questions that we do. And the sample sizes for those countries range from anywhere from 1,000 to sometimes up to 3,000, depending on the size of the country. And again, those are nationally representative samples. And even for big countries, is this the same? Like India or China that have much larger populations, is a sample of 3,000 representative of the nation? Yes, the, the sample is representative of, of the nation, uh, depending on, you know, where we go. Uh, but it, it's, it's always dependent on what the vendors in that country tell us. So for India, um, 3,000 is typically enough to get a representative population of, of the entire country, uh, with some exceptions. We don't go into every part of every country. So there are, you know, some areas that we, we might not cover in India, such as, you know, uh, up in the north um, or in places where it's too dangerous to do interviews. So there are some areas left out. But overall, yes, it's representative of most of the Indian population and elsewhere. We haven't been able to survey in China for a couple of years. But when we did survey there, it was about a 3,000 um, size sample to cover the entire country. Sure. So what kind of things do you specifically look at in your global attitudes project? What kind of questions do you look to answer? So we look to answer a lot of questions. You know, some of the most important research that we do is the international image of the U.S. and its president. So we ask people whether they have a favorable view of the U.S., whether they have confidence in the U.S. president, um, whether the U.S. government respects the personal freedoms of its people, whether the U.S. foreign policy takes into account the interests of other countries. So there's a whole like slew of questions we ask uh, on the international image of the U.S., we also ask about the balance of power between China and the U.S. So, you know, who's the leading economic power? Who do you want leading the world? Favorable views of China, views of President Xi, um, and other world leaders as well. So views of President Putin and views of Russia, uh, views of uh, Angela Merkel and uh, French President Macron. Um, so we ask those kinds of questions. In addition to that research, uh, we also ask, like, basic economic questions. So we ask people in the countries that we survey, are they happy with the economy? Uh, do they think that their children will be better off in the future? Um, do they think that, you know, there's been progress in the last 10 or 15 years in terms of the economy? And then we also ask questions on democracy. So uh, in, in the past years, we've asked whether people are satisfied with their democracy, whether they like certain aspects of democracy, such as free and fair elections, such as the ability to say what you want without government censorship. And last year, I think we asked some questions on, uh, you know, uh, what kind of government people prefer, whether they prefer democracy, a representative democracy to direct democracy, or if they have some preferences for, you know, one leader or rule by the military. So a, a whole slew of questions, and we change it each year, but there are some questions that we ask again and again and again, and we have been doing that since 2002 so that we can get a sense of how people's opinions change over time. Wow, that sounds like a giant mandate. And I'd love to know... 
about some of those questions. But before I get into that, what are challenges that you typically face when you're doing such surveys and compiling such large amounts of data? Sure. I mean, some of the most basic um, difficulties are just uh, translation. We mostly speak English here in the Pew Research Center, although we have uh, some speakers of certain other languages. But our questionnaires are developed in English, and they have to be translated into the 40 or so languages that we do the surveys in. In India itself, I think we translate into 11 languages. Um, Oh, (laughs) And so we have to make sure that our questions sort of work across the languages. And that's definitely a big challenge um, for us to do. The second challenge is to find, um, you know, vendors in each of the country that know the lay of the land, know how to do surveys, and that we are confident in their ability to get a, a nationally representative sample uh, in a way that, you know, doesn't you know hurt the overall demographics of those samples. So we have to work with our vendors to make sure that we're talking to the right people, that if it's a country that has you know, for example, half of the country is Muslim and half the country is Christian, such as in Nigeria, Uh, we have to make sure that, you know, we reach those publics because oftentimes within countries, you know, different religious groups, different ethnic groups, different ages have very different opinions about the world. So we have to make sure that we are somewhat similar to what the census bureaus in each of the countries we survey, you know, it's the same representative nature of the country as we know of the people who live in those countries. And and then the third issue, which is quality control. We have to make sure that our interviewers are doing the correct job. You know, they're not, you know, fudging any data. You know, we Mm -hmm. have to make sure that they're, you know, they're correctly supervised, that they're actually asking people questions. And we do that through a variety of means. In our countries where we do face-to-face interviews, they actually use a computer-assisted device, so a little tablet, and we can actually record the um, interviews, of course, with the... uh, interviewee consent, and we can also track them through GPS. So we know that uh, interviewer, you know, was in the town that they said they were. And so we can confirm that um, through that data. And so that's just some of the challenges of just collecting the data. And then, of course, all the issues of analyzing it and sort of disseminating it and writing the reports that we put up on our website. Yes, I'm sure when it comes to analyzing, there's so much nuance that's involved in all of this that uh, it's not as simple as just black and white with respect to any of the data that you're collecting, right? Yeah, so I mean, we so one we survey in so many countries, so we expect variation across the countries, but we also ask the same questions in the same countries over time. So we also see change over time. So we have to see, you know, how the public opinion changed in France from 2016 to 2018. But we also have to see how that compares how public opinion in India changed from 2016 to 2017 or 2018. So there's cross-national comparisons, there's trend comparisons. And then in addition to that, within each country, there are usually demographic differences. So, you know, in uh, Canada, younger people might have a different opinion of the U.S. than older people. Or, or men might have a different opinion of President Trump than women. Or people who have a favorable view of certain parties within, within the countries, like, you know, the National Front in France or AFD in Germany, will probably have different opinion on views of the European Union than do people who don't have a positive view of those uh, uh, political parties. So, yeah, there's a lot of nuance in the analysis, and we have a lot of ways of, 
of doing that. But generally, we just try to find, you know, the most interesting stories and the and the data that sort of, you know, speaks to the overall issues that we're seeing around the world. And eventually, we put out the data sets uh, on our website. So other people, academics, students, whoever can look at the data and do their own analysis. So you guys don't generally look for correlations or causations as to why data has changed in particular ways, do you? Or suppose there are elections or there's a change of the economy or I don't know, any domestic factors that could have resulted in um, a change just year on year? The why data changes is hard to do because when you set up the question originally, you don't know exactly what you're going to get. So if there is a change you, there's usually some reason, like if, you know, in 2009, of course, we saw, you know, giant declines in uh, views of the economy around the world. But we also saw a general increase in the image of the U.S. So what happened in the, that time period is that there was a large recession and that uh, Obama was elected president of the United States. So we can sort of see those changes and, and somehow connect them, but it's it's sort of impossible to say, well, did opinion change in this country because this happened? But you can generally, you know, see those changes overall. In terms of just for one year, we can often use other variables to, you know, figure out why people think the way they do. So, you know, when we're looking at democracy, we can we can tie that to views of the economy. So are people who have a positive view of the economy more likely to say that they're satisfied with democracy in their country? And generally, that's something that we see. And we can do that through cross tabs. We can also go a little further and do it through cross national correlations. And sometimes we'll we'll go up to regressions to find out, you know, the exact um, factors that are 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 causing uh, the data to say what it is. But we have a variety of tools that we use um, to do that analysis. But it is very hard to pinpoint exact causes of a lot of the data that we see. All right. Okay, so let's get down to the data. One of the first things that I was interested in, at least the stuff that Pew was doing, was to look at the way um, countries around the world look at America, how they see um, U.S. leadership and the current administration today. So how would you say it's changed. I'm guessing a decade is a long period in a short and a short period, in, uh, considering how you're looking at it. But how would you say compared to the last year, uh, the last five years, the last ten years? Yeah, I mean, because we have been asking uh, similar questions on U.S. Image since 2002, we actually can sort of see that change over time. And basically, you know, from the data that we've collected, America's international image um, sort of declined. Uh, towards the end of the Bush administration, and uh, confidence in the U.S. president declined along with that. This is after the Iraq War in 2003, you know, all the way to 2008. And then in most countries, we saw a very sharp increase in both U.S. favorability and confidence in the U.S. president in 2009 uh, with the election of, of Barack Obama. And that sort of generally positive views of the U.S., and, you know, confidence in the U.S. president continued for most of uh, that, you know, eight years that he was in office with some declines in certain nations. Um, you know, for example, uh, his drone policies were not looked favorably upon. And there were some issues, um, you know, in, in certain countries where he wasn't looked upon as favorably as his predecessors or as President Trump, such as in Israel um, and, and for a year in Russia. Uh, and then in 2017, we saw 
a subsequent drop in U.S. favorability with the election of Donald Trump and sort of more negative views of the U.S., its policies, and much less confidence in the U.S. president. And though, even though on balance there's favorable views of the U.S. in the countries that we survey, um, it's much less than it was a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's also interesting because, as you said earlier, um, well, this is within the U.S., but the idea is that if your economy is doing better, you're more satisfied with democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, would that be still true under the current administration? Uh, in the U.S. itself, it's quite polarized. Um, if you have a favorable view of the president, uh, you're more likely to say that the economy is doing well. Um, and if you have a less favorable view of the of, of Trump, you're more likely to say the economy is not doing as well. And that's that's pretty consistent within countries. Um, you know, people who support the current political order tend to be more positive on the the direction of the nation and therefore the economy as well, even if the economy isn't doing as well or is doing better. It, it's sort of, you know, they're tied together. Across nations, um, views of the economy don't really track much with um, image of the United States. Um, so that's their separate uh, kind of findings. So, for example, in Germany, um, most people say the economy is doing great and not many people have a positive view of the U.S. or its president. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. So contrast that with how people have seen China over the last 10 years. Yeah, the international views of China have actually remained quite steady over the last um, you know, 10 to 15 years. Uh, we find that Overall, views of China are more favorable um, in sort of Latin America and uh, sub-Saharan Africa um, and parts of Asia. It just depends on, you know, where you are in Asia. So, for example, the Philippines is pretty positive on China um, and the uh, uh, um and like Japan is over not. a fifteen-year. I'm sorry uh-huh. to cut you, but over a fifteen-year period, you're saying the Philippines has a positive attitude towards China. Uh, currently, they do. Um, okay, so All right. it, it, it's not overwhelmingly favorable, but it is favorable. Um, but favorable right. views of China are more common in like Russia and uh, sub-Saharan Africa than they are elsewhere. Uh, they're sort of mixed in China and the U.S. Um, and have sort of fluctuated a bit, but haven't really changed that much. So, you know, there is change over time on international views of China, but it hasn't moved as much as, you know, views of the U.S., which tend to shift more rapidly, especially when there's a change in the presidency. While in um, China, it's not as it's not as prominent, the changes in, in political leadership there to sort of change China image. But but overall, um, you know, over the countries that we survey in 2015, uh, overall favorable views of China are, are pretty comparable to overall favorable views of the U.S., maybe just slightly lower. At this point, let's take a break. Hey, this is Shiladitya. And I'm Amit Doshi. And we host Shunya One. It's a really fun podcast where we talk to some of the best entrepreneurs in the country. Yes, talking about everything from their startup challenges to what they're building and all the future of technology right here. So catch us on the IVM podcast website app or wherever you listen to your podcast from. Welcome back to States of Anarchy. I'm Hamsini Hariharan and I'm in conversation with Jacob Pauster of Pew Research Center. 
what does that also tell us about the systems? Because uh, we spoke about the relationship between economy and democracy, um, whereas China has a very different system of, you know, being politically closed and economically open. So what does that tell us about more closed systems that way? Well, one question that we asked that you can see that kind of contrast is whether the government of China and the U.S. respect the personal freedoms of its people. So this is like a civil rights issue. It sort of speaks to that difference in um, and how they're run and, and how they treat their people. And this is definitely a negative point for China. Um, you know, in almost no country do people say that China respects the personal freedoms of its people. But despite sort of like declines in U.S. image over the last couple of years, uh, most still say that the U.S. government respects the personal freedoms of its people. So that more the openness is a strength of the United States uh, versus China. And so you see that in overall favorability that uh, there's a correlation that those who uh, have negative views of China tend to say that China does not respect the personal freedoms of its people. And that's across the country, which we survey There's a correlation of 0.79, which is pretty strong. Um, so you definitely see that that linking of soft power and, and sort of overall favorability in our ratings of China and the United States. So this would mean that people generally allow their um, ideologies or personal beliefs to cloud um, just the way data is? Would that be a fair assumption? Well, people people have a lot of reasons for what they think about various questions which we ask. You know, we can tie it to ideology in certain respects. For example, you know, those on ideological right in Europe tend to have more favorable views of the U.S., um, I wouldn't say it clouds it. It's just part of the overall perceptions of the people which we ask about. You know, there are certain groups, demographic groups, ideological groups, or political groups that have opinions that tend to follow one another. And so it's not like a clouding. It's just part of how they make opinions, how they think about the world. And it has to be, you know, you know, most people don't think about foreign affairs very often. So when they're asked by us uh, these questions, we assume that, they haven't had a lot of time to actually think about it. So we expect them to, you know, come up with the responses that are more general and basically how they see the world. That again can be, there's a lot of factors that go into why someone believes something, the reason they do. And that's not something we often probe into why they feel the way they do. We just sort of report what they say. Sure. But that's interesting. Um, I actually wonder how many people across these countries have a I don't know, sort of a well-informed opinion about foreign policy or are interested in matters between states? Yeah, I mean, generally, we've asked questions before on whether people follow the news, you know, uh, both locally, internationally, and sort of nationally. And when you rank them, people are much more likely to say they follow national and local news than follow international news. That's pretty consistent across almost every country in which we survey. So there is sort of a divide between thinking about your own political system, your own life. Um, and so people are allowed to not answer the questions we ask. In fact, in India in particular, uh, a lot of people refuse to answer the questions or, or volunteer that they don't know um, on a lot of the international questions that we ask. Uh, either because they don't feel like they have enough knowledge to answer it or they just don't want to answer the question. Um, and that is that is something that we allow respondents to always do. They, they don't have to answer every question, but uh, we hope that maybe they can at least give us their, you know, just their general thoughts on the questions that we ask. And when we ask about 
how people feel about their economies and their own country, they tend to be more likely to answer those questions, maybe because they're more familiar with what's going on in their local area or in their national politics. That makes sense. Okay, so moving on to India, could you tell me more about how India specifically looks at the U.S. or at China? Yes, uh, unfortunately for India, we didn't have the proper data this year uh, for a variety of reasons. But we do have data from 2017, which basically speaks to that question. And you know, overall views of the U.S. are pretty positive. As I said, about 40% of the Indian population that we talk to doesn't answer questions on international affairs. So the numbers might seem a little different from the other countries, but generally... 40%? Is that, that sounds really high. Yeah, that's high. India is a country where we generally have more people who say they don't know. And that's, you know, when you asked me the question earlier about whether our sample is representative, it is. But that means we talk to a lot of people in more rural areas in places where might, you know, where those kinds of aspects, international image of the U.S. and China just aren't um, thought about as much. So there's a lot of non-response in those countries. But of the people who do respond, they generally have uh, positive views of the U.S. and generally negative views of China. All right. Okay, that's interesting. It would also be interesting to see how the results are this year or maybe next year, considering um, that India and China have had a number of issues over the border and then over trade. So that would be interesting. What I also wanted to know was, um, considering that US and China are having a trade war, does Pew have any data on how each country is seen in terms of its economy? Uh, yeah, we ask a question each year on which country is the world's leading economy. Um, and this, you know, the questions that we asked in 2018 were formed at the end of 2017. So a lot of the trade issues that are now sort of roiling international politics were not as clear. So we didn't ask any specific question about trade policy. But when we ask about who's the leading economy, we find that more people still say the U.S. is the world's leading economy. But in the in recent years, more countries have sort of shifted to say that China is the world's leading economy. And that's that's a trend we've been seeing for many years. And so that's one aspect where we see, you know, that there is sort of a, a competition between the U.S. and China about who is the world's leading economy. But when we ask people just, you know, who would they prefer as, as being the world leader, uh, people still overwhelmingly want the United States to be the world's leading power when we give them the choice of the U.S. or China. So there's that divide where, you know, China's growing economy has definitely affected overall views of the balance of power, but most people still prefer the United States as the world leader in the current, even though people don't have a lot of confidence in the U.S. president right now. All right. And how does, I'm just curious, how does Russia or Germany or any of the other countries compare? Are they also included in um, the list? So we ask on the question of, of who's the world's leading economy, we do include the EU and Japan as other options. Um, and not many people choose those countries. Uh, the, the highest uh, rating, the highest number we get for the EU is in Germany, where 21% say the EU is the world's leading economy, versus 53% who say China. And then uh, a, a couple countries say Japan is the world's leading economy, but it's not much either. So generally, you know, though, for the world's leading economy, it's either the US or China. 
It's interesting that you ask about Russia, but we didn't include them as a world leader option. Um, but in Russia itself, about 40% say that um, neither the US or China is, they prefer as the world's leading power, which we assume means that they prefer themselves as the world's leading power. But um, we, we didn't we didn't offer that option this year. We did, though, ask a question about what countries are more important in the world compared to 10 years ago. And here, China is clearly the country seen as more important in the world compared to 10 years ago. Uh, a median of 70% across the 25 countries that we surveyed say that China is more important. And, this, and the country that got, actually had the second most number of people saying they're more important was Russia, where 41%. But that's still far below what people say about China. And the third is Germany. So 35% say Germany is more important. No, I was just wondering, does India feature on that list at all? Yeah, India is actually, uh, if you rank them by the median across the countries, is actually fifth of the seventh, which was actually, to be honest, uh, somewhat surprising to me. Um, knowing how India has gained prominence on the world stage over the last five years, but publics around the world are not yet convinced that India is more important than they were 10 years ago. Um, it's, it's not half in any of the countries which we survey compared to China, where half or more in virtually every country we survey say that China is more important. So there is, there is a bit of a divide there uh, on that question. All right, that is interesting. Um, something that I was actually looking at um, was that Pew uh, reported unfavorable ratings for your American President Donald Trump's policies last year. So has that, has that figure changed this year? Uh, unfortunately, we did not ask that question again this year. Um, we focused more uh, on world powers rather than the leaders. Um, so okay. we don't we don't know how. Uh, his policies are being um, seen compared to the first year. In the first year, as you mentioned, uh, there was very negative views of his policies. Um, you know, we we actually we came up with a list of questions before he actually had taken office, and so we had to sort of guess on what his policies were going to be. But we generally, you know, hit the mark uh, where people said that they did not approve of him pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, did not approve of sort of. Uh, uh, you know, throwing out trade agreements such as um, the TPP. Um, and they they definitely did not like the idea of building a wall between the U.S. and Mexico. There was slightly more support for um, pulling out of the Iran agreement and for, um, you know, instituting uh, restrictions on people coming to the U.S. from certain Muslim-majority nations. Um, but those were still negatively seen across the countries that we surveyed. But we, we, we do intend to ask those questions again next year. So we will get a better read of how views of his policies have changed between 2017 and 2019. I will say that, you know, overall views of the president did not change much, um, of the U.S. president did not change much between 2017 and 2018. Uh, there was just not a lot of movement on, on that over that time period. So a lot of these opinions seem to be pretty baked in. The exceptions were um, in Israel, where he was he became more popular. And that isn't surprising. In South Korea, which he also became more popular, although still not overall popular. Uh, I think it went from 17% confidence to 44% confidence. And that was probably on account of the negotiations uh, with uh, the North Korean leader. Um, and then finally, in um Russia, we saw actually a pretty big decline in confidence in the U.S. president from 2017 to 2018. I think there was some 
hope that relations between the two countries would be better uh, when when Trump took office compared to Obama. But that did not seem to um, come to fruition. And so opinions of the U.S. president and uh, the U.S. fell on Russia in 2018 compared to 2017. That's actually very interesting, considering that um, Russia was majorly supportive of uh, Trump taking the presidency. Right. So we definitely saw an uptick from the Obama ratings, um, sort of from Obama to Trump, sort of a pretty big increase. In fact, uh, across the uh, 40 nations, I think, that we surveyed in 2017, there was only an increase in confidence in the U.S. president in two countries, and that was Israel and Russia. Um, but but it, it turns out that that was sort of a short-lived bump, at least in Russia, but not in Israel. In Israel, they still really like uh, uh, Trump, and he's he that's where he gets his second highest ratings across the world, and his highest ratings are in the Philippines, actually. Wow. All right. That, that's very interesting. W- what other questions did you ask this year generally about attitudes towards um, the U.S. or China or just anything else that's interesting? Uh, you know, we, we asked a question on whether the U.S. considers, uh, you know, other countries' interests when making foreign policy. And generally, people do not think that the U.S. does consider their interests when making foreign policy. And it also fell um, quite a bit from 2013 when we last asked that question. We also saw a decline in those saying that the U.S. government respects the personal freedoms of its people. And that had been declining for for a few years, but sort of fell off uh, with the election of Trump. Um, We asked whether uh, relations between uh, the U.S. and their country have, uh, you know, gotten better or worse. And most people actually in that category said that relations are about the same. So despite more negative views of the U.S., most countries say that relations are about the same. The exceptions are in Germany, uh, Canada, Russia, and Mexico, where people say that relations with the U.S. have gotten much worse over the past uh, year. And so th- those are just a few of the questions that we ask about um, the United States in general. And we generally, we, we like to repeat a lot of those questions over time to see how they change. Uh, yeah, those countries do seem... Uh, predictable when they see a downturn uh, in their relations with the U.S. Uh, But what are you looking forward to capture in the survey for next year, if you're allowed to tell me? Yeah, sure. So next year, we're going to look at, again, you know, international image of the U.S., sort of the balance of power between China and the U.S. And we're going to focus a little more on policies of the United States and and, um, Donald Trump's policies to see how that's changed. We're also going to be doing a deep dive into uh, Europe. Uh, next year is the uh, 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, and we're going to see how people in Western and Eastern Europe sort of see that um, that event and how their views have changed. Uh, the founder of our organization, um, the late Andy Kohut, uh, actually did a survey in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union in 1991, and he did it with uh, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, and we have all this data from that survey, and we're going to repeat a lot of the questions that we asked about in 1991 this year and see how they've changed literally over that, you know, 30-year period. And so that would be very interesting to see. And in addition to all that, we're going to be focusing on globalization, democracy, sort of the core questions that we ask about each year. And we still have yet to actually release a lot of data from our 2018 survey on those questions, as well as views of cybersecurity, global threats, 
um, and views of technology around the world. So there's a lot more data to come from the 2018 survey. And in addition to that, we're starting to sort of work on questions for the 2019 survey. So we got a lot, got a lot cooking, a lot to come out over the next year. Yeah, that sounds pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. um, I have one last question for you. Just if someone's interested in global attitudes, what would you recommend they read? It could be something of Pew or it could be a general academic work. Just one recommendation on uh, what people should read if they want to know more about the way people look at the way countries attract. Uh, yeah, one book is America versus the World, um, which was written by Andy Kohut and Bruce Stokes, who also works with us. Um, I believe it's still in print, but that's sort of a good um start on how we've done the surveys in the past. Uh, and it also, it was from, you know, the, a period where there was sort of a large amount of anti-Americanism after the Iraq war um, and, and, you know, towards the start of the global recession. And you can sort of see how if you read that book and then you sort of read the stuff on our website, you'll see how things have changed overall in the last 10 years and how changeable uh, international public opinion can be. You know, there's other good sources online for international um, public opinion. Uh, Gallup does work around the world. They have a world poll that, that people find uh, interesting and you can sort of get data from. And, you know, there, there are a couple of other organizations such as uh, YouGov, Ipsos, GFK, and Eurobarometer in, um, in Europe, uh, Afrobarometer in Africa, uh, the Latino Barometer in Latin America, um, those are all good sources online for people who want the most up-to-date uh, public opinion uh, research. And, you know, as I said earlier, it, it always changes. So it's really good to sort of, you know, stay tuned to our website and see what else is going to come out in the next year and how things will change over time. All right. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Jacob. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. That brings us to the end of this episode of States of Anarchy. I've also attached a bunch of extra readings if you're interested in global attitudes research. If you have any comments or questions, you can reach out to me on Twitter where my handle is at the rate Hamsani H or on Instagram at the rate States of Anarchy. You can listen to the States of Anarchy podcast on the IVM podcast app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'll be back next Tuesday. Do you wish you were smarter? Well, so do we. But the next best thing? We could make you sound smarter. And to help you with this endeavor, we are Simplified. A podcast uh, that attempts to break down the complex world around you with a little knowledge, a lot of poor jokes and a ton of random trivia. Episodes out every Monday. On the IVM podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. See ya! Advertising is dead. Yep, you heard me right. Advertising is dead. We're all in the content business now. Let's not call it news, TV, radio, etc, etc. It's all content and we're in the middle of this weirdly exciting phase where all the borders and lines that have been drawn over decades has been swept away by this lovely thing called the internet. We're a show where we don't dwell on just the stuff that is now, but rather the wider stuff about advertising, media, content and the whole goddamn circus surrounding it. Tune in every Tuesday for our weekly unboxing of the mystery box we used to call advertising. I'm Varun Dugirala, co-founder and content chief at The Glitch, and this is my new podcast, Advertising is Dead. Advertising is Dead.